Thanks for listening to Bullseye. More than 40 million Americans speak Spanish and millions more are learning. For all of you, I'd like to recommend NPR's Radio Ambulante. It's the podcast to hear incredible stories from all over Latin America and across the U.S. Hosted by novelist Daniel Alarcón, Radio Ambulante covers the region like nobody else. Reporting and storytelling in Espanol. Radio Ambulante is on NPR One or wherever you listen to podcasts. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. Today, I'm talking to the Pointer Sisters. It's going to be great. You're going to love it. You know what the best part of it all is? We get to listen to Pointer Sisters records with the Pointer Sisters. This was my preschool jam. Oh get out God. of here. Oh. <laughs> Three-year-old Jesse got Preschool jam. I love that. Love. <laughs> hey. This still gets me. Oh, my we be God. We've so good. <laughs> I swear. It drives me crazy every time. I hear it. Oh, <sighs> <laughs> I'll get so emotional, I'll just scream. It really is so good. <laughs> it's Bullseye. Coming up, Ruth and Anita Pointer will talk about the records that inspired them. Elvis, Aretha Franklin, Gladys Knight, yeah, Stevie Wonder, Stevie Supremes, Wonder. James Brown, Pop Little Harris. Richard, Sam Cooke, mm-hmm. Eugene Church. <laughs> oh, my God. And the country and western song that got them a Grammy. The band got mad because they didn't want to play country. They didn't want to play it. They didn't want to play it. <laughs> then Bootsy Collins, one of the greatest bass players of all time. He played with James Brown. He played with George Clinton. He still has an amazing solo career going. Hey, Bootsy, you're a superstar, right? <laughs> uh, twinkle, twinkle, bobble. Finally, say what you want about the Muppets. Maybe you didn't like the new movies. Maybe you missed the TV show. The original Muppet movie is still a classic. I'll tell you why. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My first guest this week, the Pointer Sisters. We talked in 2014. Few R&B acts from the 1970s made it through to the 1980s, and even fewer got stronger. The Pointer Sisters were already music industry veterans when they had their biggest hits in the mid-80s. They're tracks that are ubiquitous even today, like this one from 1982. The Pointer Sisters made it through the disco era and out the other side because they were always chameleons. They had pop, R&B, and even country hits in the 70s. They even sang straight jazz. Take a listen to this cover of the bebop classic Salt Peanuts from 1975. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention this gem from Sesame Street. Ruth 
and Anita Pointer join me on the show now. Ruth, Anita, welcome to Bullseye. It's great Hello. to have you on the show. Great to Hello. be here. Hello. Thank you. I, um, I have to admit, I was uh, changing from my workout clothes into my work clothes this morning while I'm so excited was playing on my stereo here in my office. And I felt like I was in like a really thrilling film montage. <laughs> Wow. That's you wanted wonderful. to work out all over again, didn't you? <laughs> yes, absolutely. I was I was pumped. I was ready to go. It's a good one. Wow. Um you guys and, and your uh sisters and brothers grew up in Oakland. Yes. Can you tell me That's a little right. bit about um what your home was like? Maybe Ruth, you could start. You're you're the eldest. Well, it was crowded, I'll tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> sure was. I mean, generally, we lived in a two, maybe two-and-a-half-bedroom house with six kids, and we always had animals, dogs, cats, birds. And our grandfather. And my grandfather. Mm-hmm. And it was, but it was, you know, we didn't feel like it was anything strange at that time because there was a lot of love in our house and uh, a lot of laughter. Mm-hmm. Both of your folks were ministers, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. They were. Yeah. And that made it a little mm-hmm. tough, but we got around that. Like Ruth said, it was, <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> they had to leave home sometime, and we'd, we'd take over. <laughs> they couldn't watch all six of us at one time. As kids, we would try to be ministers, too. You know, I, mm-hmm. I did. Ruth did, too. We'd have little <laughs> church services downstairs. And mother would shut up all that noise. And you, and, you know, we had to entertain each other because we didn't have a television for the longest time. Right. And there was only one real uh, mechanical form of entertainment in the house, a radio that my dad owned. And, I mean, he owned it. <laughs> we couldn't <laughs> you touch didn't it. touch that radio. You better not so. touch that radio. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> And my mom, you know, had one gospel record, Mahalia Jackson, that she pulled out maybe around the holidays that we would play. When you were kids, uh, popular music was changing really, really fast in really huge ways. Mm. I mean, you had the birth of rock and roll in the early to mid-50s, and then, you know, three, five years later, the birth of soul music. Mm. Um, Were were you completely insulated from that, or were you feeling that at at school and in the world outside your house? Oh, honey, I was feeling it all. (laughs) I was feeling it. And wanting to be it. Oh, I'm telling you. Really. You it was like be... I was sneaking to to listen to it, mm-hmm. you know. And it was at, it was during the time when, like, the first um, radio transistor radio. Right, yeah, the little and, bitty yeah. thing, those little transistors. I wanted one so yeah. bad. I don't think I ever got one. The first one was radio. big because my brother got one yeah. when he went off to college. I remember right, that big oh cream God. and pink looking thing he had. <laughs> Like kids that sit those things up on their shoulders, you like know? the boombox, like the boombox. Yeah, right. And I mean, oh my God, the music that that you could, you know, you could hear without your parents knowing you were listening to it. Yeah. Are we talking about a classic, like underneath the sheets at night type situation? <laughs> well, we didn't have one personally to put underneath the sheets, right. so it was usually I usually would hear it at another person's house, right? Friends' homes, at school. Friends' homes. You know, we'd go to our friends, and they would be playing everything. So we, we yeah, they couldn't Even some keep of it my away from us. friends. What what records do you what records do you remember really moving you as a kid? Ooh. Elvis, Aretha Franklin, yeah, Gladys Knight, yeah, Stevie Wonder, Stevie Supremes, Wonder. the Motown sound, the Philadelphia yeah. sound. You know, all that was just. So James Brown, Pop Little Richard, 
Yeah. Yeah, and I, you know. Yeah. Little Willie John, Sam Cooke, mm-hmm. Eugene Church. <laughs> oh, my God. Kim Weston. Mm-hmm. Um, the, I mean, you know, Martha Reeves and the Vandellas. It was uh, music that and Marvin Gaye. Ah, it, it was music that would just make us cry. Mm-hmm, it really would. When did you start singing together? In church, as little girls, we sang all yeah. as, as long as I can remember. Yeah, we were singing together. You know, yeah. in church, we kind of wanted. We kind of shook things up at church because we wanted to rock it out a little bit and. <laughs> And we thought that was cool, but some of the members of the church didn't think so. so. What songs were you rocking out, and how were you rocking them out? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God, what were some of the songs we said? As Jesus sat there on Mount Olive, disciples came to them privately saying, what shall we the sign of his coming? You know, things like that. They were gospel songs. They were gospel songs, but our church didn't really uh, embrace you know, a lively gospel sound. Right. It was so... And we had, like I said, we had started going to other people's churches, our girlfriends. You know, we had friends that lived in our neighborhood that fathers pastored other types of churches. And and we liked to go and visit other churches and go to these other churches and people would be rocking out. Oh, With tambourines God. and things that we couldn't, we didn't even have in our church. We only yeah. had piano and organ. And they would have guitars and, and drums tambourines and, and drums and all this. People would be dancing all and up and down the aisles. The Ephesians Church of God in Christ had oh, a midnight musical. Please. And I mean, like uh, Billy Preston would be there. Yeah. <laughs> Yes! yes! It would be the so Kojics. incredible. Oh, my yeah. God. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to Ruth and Anita Pointer. They're members of the Pointer Sisters, one of the most successful R&B groups of the 1970s and 80s. They grew up in Oakland, California. When did you start performing as the, as the Pointer Sisters yourselves? In 72, I guess, we started our album, and 73, our first album was out. Well, let's take a listen to the first single from that first album. It's called Yes, We Can. It was your first big hit. Yes. What's interesting is, yes, we can. In a lot of ways, is a, you know a, a relatively straight uh, R and B record from that era. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a little New Orleansy, a little jazzy. Mm-hmm. Alan Toussaint. But that album is all over the place stylistically. It's every kind of thing. 
Was that always mm-hmm. the idea? Yes. And yep. I mean that as a compliment, not as it an was. insult. And we were no, told we couldn't do that. We were told we didn't want to be pigeonholed. Do that. You got to sing R and B, and that's all you can sing. That was that's what mm-hmm. they told us. And when we brought our first producers, when we brought uh, country music and things like that, they laughed in, in our face. They just laughed like. <laughs> You girls, oh my God. Who do you think you, you are? are? black girls and you are have you to sing kidding? black R&B. That's all you can do. <laughs> <laughs> but we showed them. <laughs> so I want to play another song from your first record. It's this song called River Boulevard. And this wow. is, this is and we're going to start with a little bit from the middle of the song. And this is, this is sort of, has a kind of gospel R&B feeling. Sweet, too. sweet Sort of by the end of this song, you've gone from, you know, the song starts with a real slow piano build. It goes into that sort of relatively straight gospel R&B mm-hmm. thing. And by the end of the song, it is basically full-on psychedelic. Let's, let's take a listen to the end. Pretty much. Take a listen. I don't know, but my drum's kind of good. Gaylord Burke losing his mind. I know exactly. <laughs> it's spectacular. I, I love it. And Thank you. what I think is really interesting about it is that it goes from that crazy outro where everyone's going wild, everyone's soloing at mm. once. It sounds amazing. Directly into this. Way down up on the River. Hmm. Interesting. They had a special kind of song to help them push the work along. They don't do the I mean that is such a that is such a, a gutsy thing to go to, to go from uh, to go from this absolutely most contemporary outre sound directly to Swanee. Yeah, Peppy, yeah. <laughs> praying for me. Where did you even get the taste for that music? God, we always had the taste for that music. Yeah. We were. We love that that whole period, you know, mm. uh, that whole, I don't know. We just kind of like had it in our blood. I think. That harmonizing Antiques thing and, that the Andrew sisters yeah. did, that, you know, groups groups did. And we we were sort of like a group. We were at home and we, weren't, and we all sang together. So we love that harmony. You also at the mm. time were wearing... Some absolutely spectacular clothes. Yeah. Spectacular clothes. Yeah. We love those things. Those were our party dresses. And and when we got ready to do an album cover, David said, the dresses you guys wear to parties and stuff, you that's what I want you to have on. So we didn't have a stylist. We brought our clothes from our closets. And yep. that's how we dressed on our first album cover. Describe the clothes that, that you wore back then. I had on a hat, a, a stole that sister... Tires, one of mother's friends gave me, and an old suit that we got at an antique store. I love that suit. Oh my God. I wish mm-hmm. I had it now. <laughs> it was yellow. Suit. Oh my God. Oh, and some beautiful satin shoes that I bought in London when we were on on the road with Dave Mason. Mm-hmm. And uh, what did I have on a hat? 
There are some serious hats on that album cover, if I remember I had correctly. Mama's hat on. You had on. Ruthie had a mother's hat, and Bonnie had yeah. on a sister's Tyre's hat. And June had on, I think, June a sister had on butler her own hat. hat. Most of our clothes came from attics. And, you know, when they saw that we were really serious about it, Mother's friends started giving us stuff. You know, right. they'd go down in their garages and pull out furs and all this stuff and just yeah. gave it to us. It was so yeah. wonderful. And then people stole it from us on the road. <laughs> Wait a they did. Yep. And then all the prices started going up and we couldn't afford it anymore. I'm telling you. Oh, my God. It's just horrible. Did you guys like... know anyone else who was dressed? I mean, you, you were wearing these beautiful dresses from the 30s and 40s, um, mm-hmm. you know, silk and rayon. and. Mm-hmm. We had no idea. Were there other people walking around in Oakland wearing these clothes? No, you know, I, no, I have there was to not say, anybody. I, I don't remember anybody walking around in Oakland, but but I think we can I think we were doing that during a period when that was kind of like the trend because it was during the hippie age when there was so much rebellion um going on, you know, that I, I do remember especially like tops, antique tops being worn with like bell bottom jeans and stuff like that. Then we started being known for just our clothes. And we were really doing too much because we were ch- wanting to change every show, to wear a different outfit every show, and we like got just run down with that. We were carrying so many things on the road. I mean, big. Our cases would be almost as big as this room. <laughs> I mean, really, I don't know how we got them on the plane. They were huge, yeah. big anvil cases, heavy, and you could carry them on the plane. I know. And not we used get to get charged. <laughs> <laughs> and then the clothes started tearing up. And then we went on the road with Carol Burnett. And, oh, my God, she taught us so much. Because she yeah. took, like, two dresses for the whole tour. It's like a stage play. And that's when I realized, ha, it's a stage play we're doing here. Yeah. We don't have to bring every dress we have. It's not a fashion show, you know. Right. But our audience really took it as that. But we brought we started taking less and less things on the road because you can wear them again. <laughs> You don't have to just, I wore that last week. I can't wear that this week. Forget it. (laughs) Like a lot of um, R&B groups, um, you had a big country hit uh, in the early to (laughs) mid-1970s. Okay. Yeah, right. Um, Let's take a listen to uh, this song, Fairy Tale. Anita, I think this is you singing lead, right? Yes, it is. Uh, from from 1974. My, my guests are Ruth and Anita of the Pointer Sisters. I'll pack up all my things and walk away. I don't want to hear another word you have to say. been waiting for so long so and just long. found out there's something, something wrong nothing wrong. will get better if I stay there's no need to explain anymore I tried my best to love you now I'm walking out the door Oh, no, 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 no,
how did this song even get end up getting put out as a sing? I mean, how did it end up on your album? How did it get, end up like you're a recording R and B music? Like, how did you convince your label? Like, hey, we've got this country record that we'd like you to pitch to country radio. David Rubinson loved that song. He loved our writing, and it's a song that we wrote. And he just he took us to Nashville. He had worked with country musicians before, prior to moving to California. And he took us to Nashville, and, and we ended up with the Grand Ole Opry musicians playing on it. Yeah. He and, really made uh, it authentic. That's yeah. That's what I think what made he, it acceptable. And it was, you know, a song that was from the heart. So he, he really loved it. He really, when he heard it, he was like, oh, my God, I love this. And the band got mad because they didn't want to play country They didn't want to play it. They didn't want to play it. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, oh, David got God. it through there. It was a it was a top twenty pop hit, and you ended up singing it on the Grand Old Opry. Yeah, and I wonder what it was like to to sort of step out on that stage that is both the most hallowed place in country music and just one of the world's whitest places. <laughs> it was terrifying. <laughs> it really was. I, I don't even. I barely remember the whole event because I was so. Right. Out of my mind. Even right. David, after I talked to him later, years later, and he said, you know, when you guys went to Nashville, I, we had to rush you into the building because there were protesters outside. They didn't want you to be there. Hmm. They had signs up saying, keep country music country and all this stuff. And and I didn't even know. Hmm. I, didn't, I, just, I never saw any of that. Right. I never saw it. We went in and we were nervous as hell and... We did our song, and that's when the guy actually honestly did get up in the audience and say, hot damn, them gals is black. (laughs) He screamed that from the audience. And so, Like not accusingly, just revelatory? Like he just was like, wait a minute, I'm putting it all together now. Exactly. There they are. And then he said, sing it again, honey. (laughs) Yep. So he liked us. He liked us, you know. But it was just such a scary situation. One thing I remember about the performance was I love the way they don't wait till the end of the song to applaud if they like it. Uh They start clapping right in the middle of the song. (laughs) You know? And I love that. I was just like, we're giving you our approval now before it's over. After a break, I'll finish my conversation with Ruth and Anita Pointer of the Pointer Sisters. We'll talk about the second phase of their career, the one where they went from being mid-sized R&B stars to huge mega hit makers. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from ZipRecruiter. If you're looking for top talent with ZipRecruiter.com, you can post your job to 100-plus job sites with just one click. Their powerful technology matches your job to the right candidates, and then their easy-to-use dashboard helps you find the right hire. That's why 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within one day. Try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com first. Hey, y'all. Sam Sanders here. want to tell you about the only NPR show where you can hear about the latest White House drama and the return of TRL to MTV. The show is called It's Been a Minute. Every Friday, we catch up on the week of news and culture, everything. And every Tuesday, I sit down for some long interviews with authors, filmmakers, directors, and more. You can find It's Been a Minute on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guests this week are Ruth and Anita Pointer. 
They're members of the Pointer Sisters, one of the most successful R&B groups of the 70s and 80s. I want to play a song from Steppen from 1975, and this is a song that is one of my mom's all-time favorites, so I would feel feel remiss if I didn't play it. Um, And this was one of the last real jazzy uh, sort of early, mid-20th century songs that you recorded. It's called Save the Bones for Henry Jones. (laughs) Tonight we'll have a party We'll eat some food that's rare And at the head of the table I'll place Brother Henry's chair Invite all the local big dogs We'll laugh and talk and eat But we'll save the bones for Henry Jones Cause Henry don't eat no meat my mom sings that song around the house when there's a vegetarian coming over to <laughs> I love it. That is such a great song. It's, we, heard, we learned wow. that song as kids. Yeah. Our play brother, David Patterson, used yeah. to sing that used song to sing that all the song time. Around around. I don't know where he got it from. I don't know. It's I, don't, just so old. I don't either. But he used to sing it to us. Yeah. And we just thought that we wanted to sing it. And mm-hmm. David thought it was a great idea. And it's... I guess around the time when a lot of people were becoming vegetarians, too. (laughs) Mm. I want to play the first single of the second version of the Pointer Sisters. Um, Bonnie left the group for a solo career in the um, late 70s, 77, 78. 76. Um, And... And you in in your album from 1977 is a great album, but uh, didn't have any hit records on it really. And you sort of reformed in a completely different form in 1979. And the first single from that record was a song by Bruce Springsteen um, called "Fire." And this is uh, one of my guests, uh, Anita Pointer, on the lead. We also have Ruth Pointer of the Pointer Sisters on the show right now. Let's take a listen. I say I don't like it, but you know I'm a liar. Cause when we kiss, ooh, fire. Late at night, you're taking me. It's a song that he, I read anyway, originally wrote for Elvis Presley. Really? Well, the, the demo sounded like Elvis. I mean, when mm. you hear the song, you can imagine Elvis singing. Elvis actually yeah. recorded your song, Fairy Tale. Mm-hmm. Right. It's such a different thing from where you had been five years previously. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's such, it's, a, it's such a different thing also from uh, the disco that at the time was still ascendant. And that your your sister Bonnie had had a couple of disco hits right around the same time, mm-hmm. um, and, and I wonder if you could tell me about what it was like to sort of tear down your image and rebuild it in a new form. Well, we kind of felt we needed a new image when Bonnie left. We had to come up with something different so they wouldn't compare, you know, the two. And Fire was brought to us by Richard Perry. And, uh, he was a producer. Of the yes, the producer of the, the last record. few years that we recorded. And I, I listened to it. I said, "God, that's too low for me." Maybe I guess he wants Ruthie to sing it. <laughs> he said, "No, I want you to sing it." Mm-hmm. So it became our first gold single. 
We had had gold albums before, but I didn't realize what a difference a gold single made because it's a song that's played, that one song, over and over and over and all over the world. And it really became a major hit for us and made a total difference in our career. Yeah. What were the dynamics like in the group at the time? Because Bonnie had left, and I know June had um, uh, June had mental health issues that meant that she was in and out. In and it was, out it was for Ruthie years. and me, and me, Ruth, and, and June. Yeah, I needed for for many, many years. Yeah, well, like thirty years after Bonnie left. It was it was initially Anita just going to be you and Ruth, right? And then mm-hmm. you and then you sort of brought June back into the fold. Mm-hmm. Right. We found Richard Perry, me and Ruth, and um, he told us, if you can get June back in, we got a deal. Yeah. So we went after her because she was upset because Bonnie had left. And, well, Bonnie's leaving, I'm leaving. And so we <laughs> talked her into it, and, and she came and met with Richard, and it was just all beautiful after that because... He loved her voice. He loved her. And she was just so vital for us. Oh, my God. It was just the perfect combination, you know. And, uh, yeah. When it works, it works. Mm -hmm. There you go. It's hard for me to imagine being in a group as long as the two of you have. And even less so being in a group with family for that long. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, if I if I think of my mom and her sisters, who are pretty much exactly the same generation as you guys are, um, and I try and imagine them having been in a music group together, <laughs> like, I, you know, they love each Somebody other. Somebody would be killing another one. <laughs> I'm telling you, it's not easy. And it's, no, it's, it's mo- not easy. But it's the most wonderful thing you could ever have because, you know, I... I couldn't—being out there on that road can be really lonely and, and depressing and stressful. And to have someone out there you know cares about you from the heart, that, that makes yeah. a difference. Yeah, it somebody really that really gets you, really knows you, mm-hmm. you know, knows when to back off, mm-hmm. when to come on and say, come on, let's do this. And knows, knows when, when I'm to feeling say, weak you don't have and she'll to do come this. over on stage and lift me up. <laughs> Like our last literally. show. I was literally, I was very sick in, in New Year's and, and Ruthie saw that I was feeling weak. She came over and just put her arms around me and we sang like that because I really needed her support. And she just automatically did it, you know, and that's that's the kind of thing someone will do that loves you. I'm Jesse Thorne. This is Bullseye. My guests are Ruth and Anita Pointer from the Pointer Sisters. Their sisters Bonnie and June and Ruth's daughter and granddaughter have been members of the group at different times, too. How, how much of a problem was um, uh, substance use for you guys, especially at the, you know, when the music industry was like just passing bowls of cocaine left and right and I'm telling in you. limousines was also the <laughs> peak of your careers. <laughs> when I moved to L.A., I was shocked. I swear. It's just so prevalent. It was just everywhere. You know, and I, I just... This is when? When did you move to L.A.? Uh, 79, 74? I think. Or it was after the last album with David Rubinson. Yeah. And then I moved here. It was a... I, I mean, it was so prevalent and so around, I mean, even from the late, I guess the late 60s even, you know, uh, seemed like just 
everybody was doing it, and it was so natural that you just didn't think much of it. You didn't mm-hmm. think much of doing it. You didn't think much of the people around you that were doing it. It was just, that was just, it was there all the time. And uh, I always feel like we were very, very lucky to even have survived through that time because it was everywhere. Tell me, uh, tell me about how, how you realized that, you know, things needed to change, like when you became aware of it rather than having it just be something that was always around. I became aware of it when I started getting sick. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was on the road. We were in Atlantic City, and I was, I was very sick. And I didn't know what was wrong with me, and uh, I went to the hospital. I knew I had a horrible headache that wasn't going away for, like, days. Mm. And I went to the hospital, and they said, you have got viral meningitis. And I was like, whoa. So they threw me in the hospital, and I remember the doctor saying to me, "Um, whatever your lifestyle is right now, needs to change because your immune system is really beat up. And uh, there was an epidemic I did learn that was going around in New Jersey of meningitis at that time where some animals had had died and Mm. a couple of people even that had the disease. And I caught it because my immune (laughs) system was was just low. Mm -hmm. And I started you know, reconsidering how I was handling my health, you know, because I'm thinking, why is my immune system low? Basically, because I was not paying any attention to, you know, what I was eating, what I was putting in my body, you know, getting proper rest and all of that. I was just kind of living for the moment and jumping up on stage doing shows and, and you know, doing coke and smoking weed and drinking a lot of alcohol, and it was it was crazy. And Ruth, you you had two kids before you were even in the Pointer Sisters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you had when this happened to you, and you got really sick. You had three kids at home, right? Two yeah, teenagers three, and a, I had three children. By yeah, the Issa time, was yeah. a baby. Issa was six years old, I believe. And uh, that was another, you know, uh, thing that made me think about the way I was living my life was, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I felt Your baby. like I, I, I really could be a better role model for my children, <laughs> you know, than what I was being, you know. What was the most difficult thing about about getting out of that old life for you, Ruth? Getting, uh, getting out of it, the most difficult thing was being, was continuing to be um, around other people socially that didn't seem to have the problem that I did. You know, I I always hated being different. Even as a kid, I hated being a preacher's kid because all my friends were doing things that I really wished I could be doing, but my parents didn't allow it. And now here I was, you know, being around people that seemed to be having a lot of fun, you know, drinking and partying and doing stuff. And I couldn't do it because I had I didn't know how to control myself. And <laughs> I overdid it. And um, I had to really, really distance myself from a lot of people, a lot of people, even family members. And uh, I moved away and just, you know, started concentrating on trying to be healthy. I went from being a crazy drug addict to being a crazy health nut. 
<laughs> Literally. I mean, I made people mm. sick. Though. <laughs> she is. She's so strict with the her stuff diet. That I it's just doing, unbelievable. You know? You know, and I saw all this around me, and I, I, I mean, I had no choice but to stop. It just makes no sense anymore, you know. Yeah. So, your sister June was in was in the group with you, and um, uh, was, from what I've read, bipolar. Um, and drug use is is really difficult for people with bipolarity to manage, um, because. Among other things, everything that's good about using drugs for people who use drugs, all the good feelings that they get out of them are um, bigger for people who are um, manic. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, people also often use drugs to, you know, self-medicate to manage their Mm -hmm. symptoms of bipolarity. Um, And I wonder how the two of you felt having someone who was really struggling with her health in this group with you, especially when you were, you know, when you were tour- when you were doing all the things that a, that a band has to do, you know, mm-hmm. touring and recording and... Well, that yeah. was even harder after Bonnie left because, you know, even the years, the three years we were together with, with all four of us, she was in and out. You know, but we had the three, so it always worked. But, and we never heard of bipolar. I'd never heard that word before. Right. You know, and I didn't know exactly what it was that my sister was going through. Yeah. And I couldn't, I didn't understand it. And we, she went to doctors and she said she didn't want to take these, this, um, the prescription drugs and stuff. She said, I don't want to take this stuff. So she wouldn't take it. And I I didn't know what to do. I really didn't. We just kept her close, you know, and and protected her as much as we could. Mm-hmm. But this is a scary position. Yeah, it, to was, be it in. was a hard time because you know, like Anita said, that the 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 medical technology hadn't kicked in the way it has today, where they have all these diagnoses for mental illness. Mm-hmm. You know, and um, I mean, there are a lot of things that that happened that we had no knowledge about, you know, and um, it, it was just very hard. You know, we just had to love her and, and like, you know, like you said, try to protect her and, as much as possible. But she was a grown woman and we couldn't make decisions for her. Mm-hmm. Did she ever stop using? Mm-mm. I don't think so, no. No. And in the end, when she had cancer, I didn't, you know, the doctor said she was all through her body. And uh, I think she knew it. And she just yeah, didn't want to did go through the pain of, you know, chemo and all yeah. that crap. Because I don't see how she was even still standing. Yeah, I don't know. Once we saw those x-rays, I was, we were like, whoa, how mm. is she even standing? She's got to be in a lot of pain, but, you know, it was just very, very hard. And she still looked beautiful. I, I heard that when when she was really at, at her sickest, um, she couldn't talk. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, she true. couldn't talk She couldn't anymore. swallow and she couldn't talk. Mm-hmm. But you um, sang to her? We sang, we sang to her, to her yeah, and we she did. would... Sh- 
And she would and she mouth was, to us, I uh-huh. love you. She was we could always understand when she was saying, I love you. Uh-huh. You know? So she was surrounded by love up until, you know, right up, right through the last moments of her life. Your, um, your sister, uh, Bonnie, has also had substance abuse issues throughout her life. And, yeah. Um, in the last few years, she's performed with you guys sometimes and mm-hmm. um, uh, often not. Um, is, it, is it tough to know what, um, what to do about your, you know, grown sister that you love that you probably love singing with mm-hmm. yeah yeah it's tough to know what to do yeah i love her to death she's just getting out of rehab and um she's doing incredible she's sober you know and she I, i've seen a big change in her and i'm so happy for her and i just hope she continues you know but yeah, it's hard to know, you know, mm-hmm. how to how to deal with it because you just it's tough hanging on. The you know, the easiest part is getting sober. The hardest part is staying sober. Mm-hmm. You know, and I've 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 really been, you know, I've dealt with with the whole issue um for a lot of years even with my two older children. So, you know, one day there's sober a couple of weeks they're sober and the next week they're back out again and you know and you you keep getting your trust violated over and over again to the point where you just don't know you know what to believe so that's the part that makes it very very difficult you want to believe in them you want to trust and you want them with you but you know you you have to think about your own life and the issues that you have in your own life too that could be very quickly and very easily taken away but how does it feel when you're singing on stage with your sister Bonnie now? It's like we never stopped. <laughs> yeah, we we haven't sang with her in a while, and um, we did some studio work with beautiful. her in L.A. not too long ago, and it's like we never stopped. Mm-hmm, it's just we magic. jump right we, back into the harmonies that we always knew. Yeah, it's I magical. Miss it, a lot. it really, I really is. Miss it. I I really appreciate uh, the two of you taking the time to be on Bullseye. It was really great to talk to you. You too. Thank you very much. Thank you. It was great to be here. Ruth and Anita Pointer are of the Pointer Sisters. Um, Thanks again. Thank Thank you. Ruth and Anita Pointer, recorded in 2014. The Pointer Sisters are still touring. They just wrapped up a quick summer tour. If you missed that, don't beat yourself up too much. In just a couple months, they'll perform on the one and only Soul Train Cruise. They're playing along with the Spinners, Charlie Wilson, favorite past bullseye guest, and Eddie Levert from the OJs. The cruise sets sail out of Fort Lauderdale on January 27th. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. We're playing some of our favorite Bullseye interviews from the last couple of years. Next up, Bootsy Collins. Bootzilla, one of pop music's greatest bass players. 
He's legendary for his contributions to James Brown and the JBs, to Parliament Funkadelic, to his own band, Bootsy's Rubber Band, and to many, many years of hits. He's the owner of one of the heaviest bass sounds in the world, and he's one of the architects of funk. When I talked to him, it was 2011, and he just released a record called The Funk Capital of the World. Last month, Bootsy announced he's working on his follow-up, his 14th solo album called Worldwide Funk. Let's take a listen to the first single from that album. It's called Worth My While. It features vocals from the singer Kali Uchis. This is the school for fools in love. Did I mention Another 40 days, 40 nights. I gotta get my love life right. I just like to say, welcome to my Milky Way, baby. And you better, better believe there's a heartbreak every day. Every day. Oh, there ain't nothing wrong with having fun. Unless you ain't getting none, baby. And that brings us to this occasion. Bootsy Collins, welcome to Bullseye. What's going on, Jesse? How are you? I'm doing good, man. How about you? Oh, I'm doing really good, man. And, uh, you know, just getting back out here on the road and doing that thing. And uh, it's, it's coming, connecting with the people again. It's, it's a good thing. I want to ask you about learning to play the bass. I know that your uh, somewhat older brother, who you played with for many, many years, was a guitar player. Yeah. Was it that sort of classic situation where your brother got the glamour spot and you ended up playing the bass? Well, not exactly. It was kind of more like um, he played guitar and I wanted to play guitar as well. So I started off playing guitar, but one night... His bass player couldn't make a gig, and I wanted to play with him so bad, it didn't matter what I played, you know. I could have played drums, or I could have played piano, which I had no idea how to do at the time. (laughs) I would have told him, let me do it, you know. So it really didn't matter. And uh, we did this gig, um, and I was playing bass, and, you know, it just felt so right. You've always said that you wanted to play bass the way that Jimi Hendrix played guitar. Yeah, yes. Yeah. I wonder both how you ended up feeling that way and, and also whether your brother being uh, being almost of another generation but also being a guitarist was on the same wavelength as you. Well, um I don't probably not um but you know that's kind of I came in at a time where Jimmy was like, God, I mean, I just felt like, man, this cat just not only musically, but cosmically just opened the whole world up to me. You know, Um, he made me see that I could not only um, play, you know, all these wild things and all these different wild sounds that I'm hearing. He showed me that I could even dress as crazy as I wanted to and um and I always looked up to him for that. Uh even when I was with James Brown, sitting on the back of the bus, you know, uh, popping acid and smoking weed and listening to Jimi Hendrix. 
that wasn't allowed on James Brown's bus. <laughs> Man, where are you from, you know? You don't do that. But I did that, and I wasn't doing it to be um, snobby or uh, take this James Brown or none of that. It was just that's what time it was, and that's where I was at, and that's where my whole heart was at. When did you first meet James Brown in person? Um, that was when they were recording, uh, what year was that? It was, they were recording, uh, Lick and Stick. What year was that? That was 60-something. Um, I forget the exact year. Oh, mama, come here quick and bring that Lick and Stick. And when the band took a break, he, he called us in and, um, our rhythm section got a chance to, to play, uh, Lick and Stick. I guess he was testing us to see, um, you know, uh, what we what we felt like with him. Could you tell it was a test at the time? Oh no, no, not at all. I didn't, you know, I didn't even care what it was at the time. It was, <laughs> it it was like, man, I get the opportunity to play, you know, for James Brown. I mean, you know, the, you know, it didn't even matter what it was. You know, James Brown asked us to do this, and if we had never got to play with James Brown, that in itself probably would have been. Uh, enough for me at that time. It was like, it was just incredible. James Brown was famous for his incredible drive and yeah. perfectionism yeah. that maybe even bordered on madness. Yeah, yeah. I, I think you're right. Um, uh, I think it did border on madness because... Every time we play a show, you know, he'd um, he'd call us in the back room and say, uh, nah, "Son, you just ain't got it. Yeah, you ain't got the one." <laughs> you know, I mean, every show we had to hear this, you know, and it was like we knew we were killing him. We knew that the people were just amazed at you know our sound and what was going on, you know, at the show. We knew it, you know. Um, and then he would call us back and tell us that. And I didn't realize till years later that it only made me want to practice that much harder. You know, uh, us as a band, it made us want to get as tight and play as tight as we possibly can. So all of what he was telling us, uh, he was using reverse psychology on us. And we, we didn't have a clue, you know. It was more about, you know, this is James Brown telling us this. They have this saying in uh, baseball that uh, winning is the best chemistry. Yeah. Um, and I imagine that part of what made you feel good about doing, uh, about working for a, you know, despotic ruler yeah. was the fact that you were in a band that was yeah. Yeah. undisputedly yeah. the best and untouched even since then. And I wanted to know how to be and how how you get to be the best like that. I wanted to know that. I wanted to feel that. I wanted to be a part of that, you know? I wasn't getting that from out there in the street. That part would have to come from James Brown and I knew I, I knew who I was with uh even at that young age and I wanted to get as much of it as I could. 
when did you realize that this huge sort of schism in your career, this huge breaking point was an opportunity for you to pursue being the Jimi Hendrix of the bass guitar? <laughs> well, you know, I guess when it when it first happened, I didn't know what to think. You know, we were so messed up that, you know, on the ride home about, man, can you believe we just, you know, we're not playing with James Brown anymore. You know, we're on the way home. What are we going to tell mama? You know, that's like, you know, that was my initial thought. Like, what am I going to tell mama? You know, she, she, you know, she just knows I'm out here just having, you know, a good time with James Brown. I'm gonna be with James Brown. This is going This is forever, man. And you're sending checks home too. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, for the first time in my life, I mean, a real check, you know. Um, and so, um, you know, we get home, and I get through that phase of it. Um, and then, you know, we get straight to rehearsing, you know, putting the band uh, back together and putting shows together. And and um, and so, you know, that part you're talking about uh, getting to the Jimi Hendrix phase of it, I think kind of um, evolved as the band evolved. When we got with George Clinton, I think that was when I first realized um I can do this now. This is the time to do this. It was in the perfect situation with the perfect uh, freak, you know, George himself, who was uh, not only behind it, that was instigating it. I gave to George any and everything that I could come up with and he was open to accept it and he, as a matter of fact he wanted to see what I had to bring to the table and so that inspired me he allowed me to go in the studio and experiment you know he didn't look at me strange when I started bringing pedals and hooking up the bass to it and he he, he wanted the experiment you know it was like bring everything you got uh, because George wants it so he was the whole opposite of what James Brown was. That was Up for the Downstroke by Parliament, one of the first songwriting collaborations between George Clinton and my guest, bassist Bootsy Collins. It seems like George Clinton's great revolution was that he brought in all these brilliant, brilliant yeah. players. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. You know, notably uh, um, among others, fr Fred Wesley from uh, the JBs. I mean, uh, Gary Scheider. Yeah, well, actually, I brought Fred and uh, Maceo, uh, you know, when I came, because when we was with James Brown, I had always spoke with Fred and, and Maceo about, would y'all play in my band once I get it together and this, that, and the other? And they said, sure, man, you know, because, you know, didn't, didn't nobody really believe it, you know. 
but when I got with George and I called them and they were so sick and fed up with James Brown, they was like, we ready, man. We ready. You know, what What do you need us to do? They came straight to Detroit and they joined the mothership. It seems like the revolution really was George Clinton realized he could be the guy who could yeah. tell all of these other brilliant musicians, hey, why don't we try doing something crazy together? Yeah. yeah. Well, you know what? It, it wasn't even about uh, George saying, hey, let's try something crazy. He already had the crazy going on. It was just giving us an outlet to be crazy. And he would allow us to do any and everything we wanted to do. And to have this kind of referee in your corner, you know, people just don't get that. You either have, no, uh, you can't do this and you can't do that. They got so many different rules and regulations that they really cut the musician's um, creativity off. George was the complete opposite. He was voting for your creativity. He was, you know, he was like a a fan of your creativity. He wanted you to bring it all, and he was rooting for you. Hit it, fellas. One of the things that's really amazing to me about um, P-Funk when it really got rolling in the mid-70s is that it was it was so broad. Yeah. In that there, yeah. Were these, there were these parliament records that were just like a, a, a heavy, funky version, a, a great radio music. Yeah. And then there's these... There's these Funkadelic records that are just <laughs> insane. Right. <laughs> and you've got a group, and all the lady singers have a group, and Fred Wesley has a group, and yeah. everybody's making music together in all these different avenues. Yeah, yeah. Well, again, you know, that was, um, I think that was more of the, the genius of George's mind, um, where he saw, um, he saw like Barry Gordy, saw but only it was like uh his freak flag he just he just flew it not only he flew it he was a part of it he was he was in it and he was encouraging it and his whole house was was what you got this was george's house he had all of these different groups signed to these different major labels these are not small labels i mean major label companies that George, you know, uh, hooked up and had us signed to. And that was incredible. More with Bootsy Collins still to come. After a quick break, the star sunglasses and why Bootsy Collins put them on. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and this message comes from 2020, where creatives get inspiring, authentic stock photos. Unlike traditional stage stock photos, 2020 has millions of real-world images your audience will actually engage with, all under a simple royalty-free license. Today, 2020 is offering Bullseye listeners a seven-day free trial of five photos. Monthly subscription begins after seven days. To start your trial, go to 220.com slash bullseye. 
It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. We'll get back to my conversation with Bootsy Collins in a sec, but before we do that, let's take a look at Pop Rocket. Every week, Pop Rocket gives you a panel conversation about pop culture that is brilliant and fascinating and hilarious. It's a lot of the kind of content that you get on Bullseye in a very different form. Among the panelists on the show, culture critic and real deal college professor, Dr. Karen Tongson. Hey, Karen, what's popping on Pop Rocket this week? Hey, Jesse. This week on Pop Rocket, we're going to be revisiting the events of 9-11 and the pop culture that was spawned in its wake, how the world was transformed by the event, and in particular, how film, media, music, and television responded to this American tragedy. Thanks, Karen. Sounds like a fascinating topic. Pop Rocket. Get it wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Bootsy Collins. He and I talked in 2011. When was the first time you put on your uh, star sunglasses and (laughs) became the Bootsy who we know as Bootsy? Wow. Um, It was in 1975. Um, um, That's when I I first put them on because I stumbled across... Well, first of all, I went out looking for two things. One thing was a person to make the star base, which I call the space base, and the star glasses. I knew that I needed these things. Uh, I used to draw them all the time at school. Star glasses on the stick man, you know, and he had a, a star guitar. I used to draw that all the time. I never knew it would wind up being me. Um, but when I got the opportunity, when George gave me the opportunity to, to do a solo thing, I was like, man, I can't, I can't look like anybody else. I got to, you know, I want to see through stars. You know, I want to uh, not only see through stars, I want to have star glasses on that that will, that are like mirrors. So when the kids look, look at me in my face, they see themselves. So this was a whole concept that I kind of had dreamed up. I was on a mission because I was, you know, recording a record at this particular time. Uh, in 1975, I was recording a record, and I'm thinking, okay, pretty soon we're going to have to take pictures for this, and i got to have these two things that I know I need. Uh, and so our manager, George's manager, who actually wound up managing me, lived out in L.A., so I got a chance to come out to L.A. and stay for a, a couple of weeks. So in that couple of weeks, I'm fine, I'm trying to find this person that makes these star glasses, who's going to make these star glasses. So I'm walking up and down the street, broke as heck, you know, um, uh, and wanting these star glasses. So I, I happen to wind up in a place called Optique Boutique. Um, and I asked them cause they had so many different weird, uh, glasses. Actually they had Elton John's glasses in the, um, up in the window. And I was like, this is the place. This is the place. I went in there and started talking to the guy, and um, we got to kicking it, and he realized I was an up-and-coming uh, musician that really didn't have no money. But the idea sounded great to him, and he put it together for me for $250. It was, it was a movement that really, that really had 10 solid years. Yeah. And yeah. I, I wonder if it was hard for that to stay together when everyone was so much doing their own thing and also everyone was so high. Wow. Um, 
I would probably say the first, probably the first five years, it it, it would really wasn't hard. Um, I think it it became really hard when everybody started realizing money is being made. Um, that's when, uh, and that's usually when you know, um, um, well, especially back in that in that time, that's when the problem really started. You know, um, and then the other problem was George was having more fun than anybody, <laughs> you know, and um, he's supposed to be steering the ship. Yeah, he's supposed to be, you know, he's the commander of the ship and he's acting a bigger fool than anybody, you know, um, which was fun. It was it was funny as heck. But at the same time, wasn't nobody, you know, everybody felt like they wasn't getting paid. And I think that was the last five years of what you what you're talking about. I get the impression that maybe George Clinton was the kind of guy who, rather than being, rather than maliciously taking money for himself, yeah, um, yeah. he was simply operating on the principle that we should just spend whatever we need to spend to do anything that we can think of, and, and then funk it. Including, including like motherships and yeah. just drugs for everybody. Yeah, and yeah. then and, and his plan was just well, we'll just try and make enough money to cover that. Well, you know, he didn't even have a plan. You know, it was more like, um, you know, back in the day um, when you would come to somebody's house, you know, you would come in, you know, it was like, you know, here, take, have a joint, come on, have a seat, you know. Um, and then you would kick it, you would crack jokes and, you know, so that's George's whole, um, um, mentality, you know, it wasn't about no business, you know, he wasn't, James Brown was like, uh, a businessman, you know, uh, George didn't want to have nothing to do with the business, you know, um, he was just out to have a good time on the mothership. He was, you know, the director, you know, he was you know, driving the mothership. He was just having a great time, you know. And as long as everybody could roll with that, then, you know, we'll all have a great time, you know. Um, and I think that was a I think that was a great uh, opportunity and that was a great time and a great vibe that George had, um, you know. But at the same time, you know, everybody was, uh, you know, was getting hit with bills and, couldn't pay this was getting married and having babies and the responsibility thing started kicking in and George you know he's not responsible for nothing you know and he'll let you know that you've been recording regularly through your entire career and yeah. I think that your new album, which is called The Funk Capital of the World, yeah. is kind of different. Uh, there's this thing called the griot, which is a, a kind of a, a, a West African tradition of, of storytelling yeah. that a lot of like culture theorists point to as the source for um, a lot of African-American musical culture. It's a kind of storytelling that's, that's married with music. Yeah, yeah. And there's a lot of storytelling on this record. There's Al Sharpton talking about James Brown. 
There's a, there's a really great track with Samuel L. Jackson talking about growing up. Samuel, yeah. Let me drop a little knowledge about how I got from Chattanooga, Tennessee to big city, L.A. Why did you want to make that uh, the centerpiece of, of this album? Well, mainly because um, I felt like it was time to, uh, I call it spreading hope like dope. <laughs> You know, it's like, I felt like, you know, I wanted this record to be bigger than a me record. Um, and meaning uh, bigger than just me putting out a Bootsy record or a Bootsy Rubber Band um, record. I wanted it to be uh, something totally different. And I needed to get storytellers uh, because I felt it was really necessary for not only today, but the generations to come. So it will kind of point back to where I got my funk from uh, and how we grew up. I think uh, this album points to that. Um, and that's what I was really happy about doing. Bootsy, I, I have one last question I want to ask you. And I have to admit, it is a question I have uh, I, I've wanted to ask you for at least 20 years. Wow. Wow. I hope I can answer it. I think you can. Jeez. Uh, Bootsy. Yeah. You're a superstar, right? <laughs> uh, twinkle, twinkle, bobble. <laughs> Bootsy Collins, <laughs> thank you so much for taking the time to come be on Bullseye. Oh, thank you so much. Keep that funk alive, Evan. Bootsy Collins from 2011. His new album, Worldwide Funk, drops October 27th. In the meantime, let's listen to a classic Bootsy solo track. It's called Bootzilla. Every week we close the show with a few words from your host. It's the outshot. Why do people get into the entertainment business? If you asked 100 people on the street that question, my guess is you'd get a lot of cynical answers. For attention, to get famous, to fill a hole inside themselves, whatever. But maybe it's a little simpler. Simpler and deeper. Why are there so many songs about rainbows? And what's on the other side? I watched the Muppet movie the other day with my son. It's a story about a frog and a bear and a dog and a pig and a whatever Gonzo is. But it's also the story of the people who made it. Jim Henson and Jerry Jewell and Frank Oz and their friends. In the Muppet movie, there's just a frog in a swamp. He's inspired by the movies that have touched him. He can sing and dance a little, and somebody tells him that maybe he can make the world better. And he meets some friends who believe the same thing, and they go and do it. Just like all those Muppeteers, artists who united behind this strange dream that they could make something sophisticated and simple, funny and heartfelt, something absolutely original and almost perfectly universal. All these folks didn't get together to fill a hole in their souls. They did it for something bigger than themselves. If I were you, I would give this audition very careful consideration. You've got talent, kid. Singing, telling jokes. I mean, if you get your tongue fixed, who knows? 
You can make millions of people happy. Millions of people happy. Millions! Kermit's got his flaws, his friends do too. But their goal is a beautiful one, to be together, to believe in a dream, to make the cold bits of other people's lives a little warmer. Life's like a movie, write your own ending, keep believing, keep pretending, we've done just what we've set out to do. That's all for this week's Bullseye. Bullseye is recorded at MaximumFun.org headquarters overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California. Sparkling clean after a recent power washing, or at least slightly cleaner than it was before. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. He had help from Christian Duenas. Our production fellows at MaximumFun.org are Nick Liao and Khalid Malin. Welcome, Khalid. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher. All our interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. Our theme music is by The Go Team. They let us use it along with their record label, Memphis Industries. If you'd like to hear any of our past shows, all of them are free. Just go to MaximumFun.org or look up our YouTube channel. And while you're at it, you can check out Bullseye on Facebook, where we also share those interviews, along with uh, sneak previews of who's coming up on Bullseye, the pictures that I take of our guests, dumb, funny stuff from the Internet, news about culture, that kind of thing. Just go into Facebook and search for Bullseye. It's worth it. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. 